10 episodes in, and I still just don't know what to do. To start the show? To start the show. You always feel awkward about it. Well, now you're turning it into a tiny segment, which is Mike awkwardly tries to start the show. You complain about the schedules, Mm -hmm. and this is what I complain about. I just don't know what to do with it. The best part is I do nothing to help you. No, you make it worse. (laughs) Yeah. I just sit here and I wait and I go, Mike's going to start the show. Let me see what he does. And then I say something and you just go, oh, trying to start the show, are you? (laughs) Yeah, I draw attention to it, which makes it worse. And so this is what we do now. I see you have a line in our document, which you've placed before the follow-up section, that you seem to have a video game recommendation. Yeah, I put it at the top there because you seem to be in charge of all the show notes. I don't want to mess up all your beautiful little show notes. So if I ever write anything, I'm just going to put it at the top and you can put it wherever you want. If there's one thing I have learned, Mike, which is that if if you're doing a show which is vaguely about work and being self-employed, the thing people really want to hear about is video games. (laughs) It certainly seems that way because anytime (laughs) we mention it, the Reddit becomes full of video game stuff. Like, yeah. So I was uh, looking for feedback on mind maps, and I do have one little part, mm-hmm. but there was nothing in the Reddit, right? But mm-hmm. did we hear about video games again? Yes, we did. <laughs> yes. The conclusion to draw from this is that people who are self-employed, they have a lot of time for video games, maybe. <laughs> and it's something that interests them. So I thought, oh, I guess let me uh, let me mention something then, which is when I was, I was uh, just editing the last episode of Hello Internet, which went up yesterday after a big editing marathon. I was looking for something else to play, and you may be a little young for this, Mike, but did you ever play a game called Dungeon Keeper as a kid? No. Yeah, see, that's what I figured, because I forget, you're, how old are you? You're like 25, is that right? I'm 27, I think. I don't, this is the thing. I don't know how old I am most of right. the time. T- yeah. To the point that once I said how old I was on a show and someone wrote in to tell me that I was wrong and told me my correct age. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Nicely done there. Yep. Genius. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you would have been a little little, uh, a little young for Dungeon Keeper, but uh, it, it was a game that had kind of a cult following uh, back in maybe the in the 90s or so. But it is yet another game that follows the tragic story called Electronic Arts buys a promising video game company, promises to make a sequel, and then doesn't for years, and eventually spits out a horrible pile of poo that nobody likes. Considering I'm doing the editing, I will at this point say they just go and fuck everything up. They fuck it all up. (laughs) They do. (laughs) They really do. At the Electronic Arts corporate offices, it should say, Electronic Arts, and then right below it on a banner, it should say something like, Crusher of Dreams. It's just... They're just terrible and they just love to buy up talent and then squander, squander that talent. But Dungeon Keeper was another one of these things where people were really excited for uh, the third game in the series and nothing eventually happened except pooping out a horrible free-to-play, actually you need to buy a thousand in-app purchases thing for the iPad a little while ago. But just like with City Skylines, where... Someone else f- finally took up the mantle for SimCity because Electronic Arts wasn't going to do it. And they built an amazing spiritual successor to SimCity better than anything else, which is, of course, the city skylines. There's a team that has put together the true successor to Dungeon Keeper, uh, which is now called War for the Overworld. I only mention it as a recommendation because it originally came out many years ago, but it was a, just like a buggy mess that was unplayable. 
But I remembered that I had purchased early access to it on Steam and I thought, oh, let me give it another try. And I had a, several enjoyable hours kind of wandering down the nostalgia factor of playing this game from my childhood, which is now, uh, which is now very good and is, is definitely worth checking out if you ever played Dungeon Keeper when you were a kid. So this is one of my, one of my recommendations. I want to make a recommendation as well. Yeah. For a PlayStation game called Rocket League. It's amazing. It's just this little game. It's like one of those things. It's just a little game uh, made by a studio that I'd never heard of before that just captures the hearts and minds of people and it just Mm -hmm. takes off. Uh, So you basically, you control a kind of life-size remote control car. Like they look like remote control cars. They move like remote control cars. And And basically you're playing football with remote control cars. There is this huge ball and there's teams and you just have to try and score it and you can jump the cars, flip the cars. They have rocket packs on them so you can boost them mm-hmm. and it is incredible fun. I do not enjoy sports. I tend to not really enjoy mm-hmm. sports games. This one is just totally different. And if you have a PlayStation, you should own Rocket League because it is fantastic. And they have, uh, you can play against AI or you can play online. Um, which I really like that they have both because there's way too many console games these days that just put everything as multi- online multiplayer, which is not typically how I like to play. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I get frustrated by that as well. If you buy a game, it's like, oh, only multiplayer online. Like, oh, forget it. Yeah, it's not, not mine. It's not my bag. I just, just don't like it. Uh, going back to the PC games for a moment, how mm-hmm. do you play them? Like, what are you, what you, do you use for input methods? Well, with Dungeon Keeper, I'm still using my Wacom tablet as the primary input method because oh, interesting. really when, I, when I'm playing the game, I'm really doing uh, the first and the third edit of Hello Internet, which are both edits where I can be doing something else at the same time. Because I'm, I'm actually wanting to be able to do stuff on the podcast, I'll still use the pen. And it is, it is very usable for certain kinds of games. You could never play like a first person shooter with it. You could never play something like Doom with a, with a pen very well. I will now hear from everybody who plays Doom with a pen. Mm-hmm. But for something like Dungeon Keeper, which is a like a, a top-down, moving characters around StarCraft-style game, uh, a pen tablet is a is very usable input method. I was just thinking, because I, I just realized I haven't explained what the game is at all, but you, you build a dungeon, you play the bad guy, you build a dungeon, and heroes are trying to invade your dungeon, so they kind of flip around the traditional story. It's not like one of these games, like, for example, StarCraft, where you have to constantly micromanage each individual troop. You can do very little directly, which I think is an interesting gameplay mechanism that makes you absolutely loathe your minions. Because you feel like, just do the thing that I want you to do. But you can only issue these very broad commands, like, everybody go over here. You can't control things directly. And so when I'm working, I actually need games like that, where I... I they, don't require 100% of my attention and I can flip away from them for a few moments and make a few cuts or delete something and then flip back and continue to play them. I might look at this one. Because of this frustrating mechanic, I'm not sure that people who've never played the original ones would actually like this. If you've heard of Dungeon Keeper and you loved it as a kid, you should totally play this. But um, I'm not... I'm not 100% sure that I could recommend it just as a game in the abstract. Yeah. You stick with your you stick with your prison architect and burning everything to the ground. I'm building a beautiful prison right now. Oh, right, of course, because you turned off the losing part of the game. Really is very, very, very beautiful. I might actually work on it more whilst editing this show. There we go. Um, and it, it will be fantastic. Okay, so now let's do the real show. Yeah, let's do, let's do some follow-up. So... 
CHDO on the Reddit suggested an app that you might be interested in called Alternote, mm-hmm. which is an Evernote replacement for the Mac. It isn't a different service. It is just another app for Evernote on the Mac, which is built to take out a lot of the cruft that they add in and actually make the app nicer. Oh, I see. I see. So it's it's like a, it's like a tweet bot for Evernote. Exactly. Because it's difficult to explain because when you say it's a replacement, it makes it sound like a different service. But hmm. this is actually just an app that looks way nicer um, to be used for Evernote. But it's just hmm. on the Mac. Yeah, it does look like it's much nicer. Yeah. I might give that a try. I think you should, because if you if you, I don't know how much you use it on the Mac, I assume enough. The answer is as little as possible and enough. See, my thing when I look at something like this is I just know that if I was to start using this, I would want it everywhere. Right, yeah, that, that's not, part of the frustration. You know, and that makes me sad. Oh, they are making it, though. They're making Alternote for iOS. They've got right down the bottom, sign up to our newsletter, be the first to know about Alternote for iOS. I would definitely give something like that a try, because one of my biggest complaints with... Evernote is okay so I throw all this stuff into Evernote and I have a default folder called inbox so that I can just throw everything in there and I don't have to try to pre-sort it it makes it easier to just be able to throw things in to remove a little bit of resistance but that does mean that every once in a while I have to go through my inbox and sort all of the stuff that I've collected into you know which which topic folder is it going to go into this is exactly the kind of activity that I would love to do say while sitting on the couch you know, and, and my wife is watching some TV show and I'm, I'm there and I'm paying attention, but I also want to do a little something like this seems like, oh, the perfect kind of work to just organize something like that. I would take out my iPad to do that on Evernote, except that why they do this, who knows, but it takes so many taps to take an item and put it in a folder. And it just blows my mind. Like, isn't this the primary purpose of your thing is, is for sorting and collecting stuff? Why do I have to click on the note, click on the information box, click on where the folders go, then scroll down to select the folder that I want, click on the folder and then click OK. It's like it's like 100 taps to put something in a folder. So I just don't do it on my on my iPad, even though that is obviously the ideal place to do that kind of work. It's hugely frustrating. So if Alternote makes an iOS version, I will definitely check it out because at least from their little video here, it looked pretty good for Mac. They have a dark mode. I noticed that right away. That's yeah. that's extremely important to me. Ticking all your boxes yeah. here. And version 2, apparently for the Mac, is going to have full markdown support. Sold. Yep. That sounds like a winner. Yeah, this is definitely this definitely looks like a winner. I mentioned we didn't have a lot of follow-up on mind maps, but we did mm-hmm. get follow-up from one person, Adina, my girlfriend, who I spoke about in the show. <laughs> she right. provided me with very detailed follow-up via iMessage yesterday on her way home from work as she was listening. So I would mm-hmm. like to provide her reasoning for mind maps uh-huh. because at the moment she is the only person on site of mind maps. Was she trying to sell you on mind maps? No, she's just telling me why she likes them. Okay. So she says, I need mind maps to organize the information that I find out for my job in a way that makes sense to me rather than how someone else has structured it that makes sense to them. Uh, My maps help me simplify findings and rationales and also helps me remember them. So no matter what question I get from someone on a project, I can go to that specific location on the mind map to find the information to answer that question. So the way that I see this is like, so she draws out these mind maps. It's like, okay, I think about this, which leads me to this, which leads me to this. So if somebody asks her a question later, she can see the thinking that informed the decision. 
which is mm-hmm. interesting. And she also she wanted to say that her the way that she does these types of mind maps don't look like regular mind maps, uh, where one idea is in the center and everything branches out from it. She says that doesn't make sense to her. And then she went on this uh, rant also against mind mapping people to say, how do you organize your ideas? Why do you just throw them on paper? Do you just draw more branches? And it's crazy. So she does a, her own style of mind mapping. And I can see the thinking behind it, like drawing out these diagrams to try and display the way that you're thinking. And if your brain works like that, it's it's great. But it seems like on the whole, Cortex listeners don't seem to have mind mapping brains. Could you get an example mind map from her? Because it sounds like she doesn't like mind maps either, and she's actually doing something else. I feel like we need to see what she's doing. I can try, because you try, I don't know what she can share. But I'll, I'll see if I can get something. And if I can, mm-hmm. then great. If not, maybe I'll ask her to, to do something for me and we can put it in the show mm-hmm. notes. I don't know how much we can do, how much I can show, because she might get in trouble <laughs> for that. But we'll work That's it out. That's fine. It's worth it for the show, though, isn't it? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, what's her job isn't really as important as this show, of course. So, you know, priorities. <laughs> I have said nothing about that. You just said that sentence. <laughs> well, I can listen how that sounded and I can remove it if I need to. This week, I am happy to tell you about a new sponsor for Cortex, and that is Fracture. If you've never heard of Fracture, let me tell you what they do. They're a fantastic company that is doing awesome things with photos. So these days, our photos are trapped in our devices. They live inside of our phones, they live inside of our computers, inside of our tablets, they live on Instagram, they live in Google Photos or iCloud or anywhere. Basically, they are locked away. And you can, if you want, you can print them out, you can go down to the local pharmacy or something and print some out for yourself and put them in a frame. Once you've found a frame you like and put them on the wall, you can do all of that. But you shouldn't. You should get a fracture print instead. This is what you do. You go to fractureme.com. You choose a photo that you like. You upload it. You choose a size and shape that you want. They do square sizes and rectangle sizes. Their rectangle sizes go all the way up to 21 inch by 28 inch. And Fracture will print that photo directly onto a piece of glass. No frame, nothing. Just a piece of glass with a photo that you choose printed directly onto it. They have a lovely foam back, so they're really easy to hang up. They actually include a screw in the box for you, so you can do it all. They're packaged so fantastically. They're actually made in Florida. They have a small team in Florida who makes them and checks every single one of them to make sure that they're good. I have had them shipped to me in the UK. I have had six fractures sent to me, and there has not been a ding in any of them. They package them up real nice, and they they arrive, and you want to put them on the wall. And a fracture print is unlike any other photo you have. Usually when you see a picture on the wall, it's got a frame around it. The frame is nice, but it's just distracting from the picture itself. A fracture print is just edge to edge, the photo that you choose hung on the wall. It draws all of the attention to the bright, vivid colors and just the real fantastic look of a fracture print. I've had fracture prints of podcast artwork that I've done. You could get album covers, you could get Instagram photos on their great square sizes, or you could just get a bunch of great photos that you love of your family and friends. Fracture prints are not just great for you, they are fantastic gifts as well. You can give somebody a picture that they love in a new and unique way. And their prices start at just $15, so it's not going to break the bank. You can also help support this show and get yourself 15% off your first order with the coupon code CORTEX. So just go to FractureMe.com 
and you will get 15% off with the code Cortex at checkout. Thank you so much to Fracture for their support of Cortex and Relay FM. Getting audiobooks into Overcast. There is a lot of stuff here, Gray. So referring to last week where you were removing, you were very upset about the Audible icon changing to orange and it was completely throwing off the feng shui of your home screen design. I realized listening back to that episode that it did sound a little crazy that my that I was having this problem with the fact that it was orange. But at the same time, listening to that, I thought, no, but it really is a problem. I just, yeah, that orange is just terrible. So it did have to go. So I have a bunch of, of uh, follow-up items and other suggestions. So we spoke about last week uh, the Dropbox to HuffDuffer workflow with the Workflow app. Mm-hmm. Turns mm-hmm. out doesn't work for DRM files, as you discovered. So I have a bunch of other suggestions for you. Lucas sent over something that he created to create uh, a private audiobook podcast feed using Dropbox, and it's a script that mm-hmm. he made. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't test this because I'm too scared and confused to run scripts. It's just not something that I understand. I've upset everybody, but it's just not a thing that I've ever really spent much time with. So I assume it works. I like that you are open and honest about that. Yeah. It's just never something that I've spent any time with. I don't know any type of programming language, yeah. nothing. It's way over Scripts my head. equals scary for Mike. Yes. Terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. So um, I'm guessing. I'm guessing then that you were unsuccessful in attempting to remove any DRM from the audio uh from the audible files i can neither confirm nor deny my attempts at doing such a thing all i am providing you gray is just some suggestions (laughs) right right i i will also right neither confirm nor deny that such a thing is possible and say for the record now that if i ever make any comments about doing such a thing in the future that they are entirely theoretical conversations that are being had exactly just you know speculating about what might or might not happen. But I can also say that I'm, I have some thoughts about smart speed as it relates to audiobooks. Oh, interesting. Well, <laughs> theoretical thoughts, I suppose. Uh, right, yeah. Tyler suggested something called JustCast. It's a service that allows you to create a podcast feed using Dropbox, but everything happens mm-hmm. automatically. So this is kind of like the service version of what Lucas made. Uh, mm-hmm. You can sign up for it. It's a, it is a service that you can pay for if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of different tiers for it uh, you just create a Dropbox folder you associate it with this little app and then everything that you put into this Dropbox folder gets added to the RSS feed so you can subscribe to it um, in other services of course these aren't just for uh, for audiobooks that may or may not have copyright protections. it can be anything maybe mm-hmm. stuff that you find maybe you just want to create your own podcast feed you can do that um, there is another service called Podmash that Cosmic Servant suggested on Reddit, which looks to be a private alternative to HuffDuffer. So it basically gives you a, a, a login and it's private. The feed mm-hmm. is private rather than HuffDuffer where everything is public. The other solution to all of this is just to create a RSS feed using a service provider like Libsyn or Simplecast, like how you would normally create a podcast and just create the feeds. But the problem with doing stuff like this is you are making, you're putting those feeds potentially into the internet. I mean, you can keep them private, but people could eventually find them. Yeah. I'm realizing though, it it never even crossed my mind to use Libsyn, which might be one of the simplest answers for how to how to do this it's just yeah. it's like oh i'm busy making podcasts and then i also have this problem of boy i wish i had a podcast feed for this thing it never occurred to me like maybe we can put these two together 
You would be surprised uh, how long I was reading the feedback and putting this into the document before that occurred to me. <laughs> right. Like we are both professional podcasters who are in need of a podcast and we didn't know how to do it. <laughs> how would you even make one of these? <laughs> yeah. I don't know why my brain went to, can I write a script that would take a drop? Like I would like to recreate the whole thing myself. So Libsyn actually sounds like a, like a, at least a simple way to do the thing that I naturally started with the hardest possible way to do the thing. <laughs> so you also, I you, you tweeted out a picture which is of your home screen. This was a couple of days ago uh, where you have removed both Audible and Apple Music from the mm-hmm. home screen. So we are in complete change again. How do you feel <laughs> right now? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm, feeling, uh, I'm feeling much better about this because... There's more balance in the orange again. There's more balance in the orange. Yeah, there's some things There's some things that I still don't like. I brought out the settings app to the main screen, as I speculated last time I might, uh, which is nice. You can put that anywhere. I've had, to, I've had to move things around a little bit more since the last time I took that screenshot. But overall, I'm relatively happy because, yes, I made, a, I made the decision that two things were going to get demoted to the other folder, and it was Apple Music and Audible for very different reasons. Audible because of their terrible color orange, which I have to say I liked. I have gotten a bunch of feedback from people using other Amazon services, and it looks like Amazon has gone with orange for all of their icons. But the Audible icon orange clashes with the other oranges that Amazon has selected for their other (laughs) services. So if you look at a whole bunch of Amazon icons, the Audible one is the only one that just looks different and like it doesn't belong. So... It's not just me. Other people were complaining about this as well. That if you use, if you're all in on Amazon, the Audible one sticks out like an ugly duck. But so yes, I got rid of that one, and I have because I think we mentioned it on one of the earlier shows that I was going to give Apple Music a try and hope that Apple Music was solving all of my various music problems. And I have been giving it a go since it came out, but the end result is that I hate Apple Music and yep. I don't like anything about it, and. It's been causing huge battery drains on my phone because for some crazy reason, I want to actually have music on my phone and Apple Music seems to disagree with me. No matter how much I try to get it to download stuff, it just doesn't and it throws up error messages all the time of, oh, we can't actually download this just constantly, but it's still working in the background. And it's just like, I I feel like I'm fighting with it the whole time and it's also optimized towards old style radio and uh, like there's nothing about it that I find pleasing so I feel like you know what the hell with this I'm just burning my whole music collection down to the ground and I'm just going to start over with Spotify that's uh that's my conclusion I've been seeing that you've been having issues I have absolutely no advice for it because it just looks like a horrifically annoying thing it does surprise me because I can't personally tolerate that color green that Spotify chose when they changed to that uh-huh. Just just not even green green. Like, I don't even know what that is. It's like they should create some sort of new color class to describe what that thing is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why they did that. It's it's like they're trying to burn into the screens or something. It's just a color I cannot abide by. I feel like mm-hmm. you in this scenario, but that Spotify color makes me very uncomfortable. See, this again, I think is our age difference here because I grew up on computers that were just two colors, horrible greens and black backgrounds. And so that always feels like, oh, it's like going home again. Any any kind of green on black color scheme, I'm always a big fan of. 
because that's what I grew up with with computers. So I, I am not bothered by the green of Spotify, even though I can see that many people would be just as bothered by it as I am by the orange of Audible. But again, I had another idea this morning when I was uh -huh. putting the show together. Mm -hmm. And I created something for you. Yeah, It's a mean? workflow action that you can add to your home screen, which will open the Audible app. And you can choose whatever icon you want. Oh, I know. I've used these services before. Is it uh, Iconify? Or, or are you just using the workflow app to do yeah, it? Yeah, I just doing. created a workflow in the workflow app. Mm -hmm. And you just so you press the icon, it opens the workflow app for a second, and then it opens the Audible app. I used to actually do that with a, a dedicated app for also Audible because they used to have some other really hideous icon that I couldn't stand a long time ago. And I made a custom icon that I used on my desktop for that. But then they moved to an acceptable icon. But I also, I just don't like the fact that when you use the custom icons, it has to do the bloop bloop of opening up two things. Maybe that'll be better when I put iOS 9 on my phone because it seems a lot faster. But I, I don't like the, the, two, the two app open thing. So I'm, I'm going to pass on that for the time being. And Yeah, it definitely looks nicer on iOS 9 because I'm running it yeah. on my phone right now. Yeah, but just a, just, a discussion, just a discussion in general, not of any files that have DRM on them, but we, we can just have a general discussion about listening to audiobooks in Overcast. Yeah, audiobooks that you made. Yeah, audiobooks that I, I, uh, I have... Recorded. Yeah, I have recorded some public domain material mm -hmm. in audiobook format. But you just need to keep it in a private RSS feed because right. you're doing accents and stuff and you don't want people yeah. to hear them. Exactly. Reading to myself and then I listen to it again. But so yes, we can have a general discussion about audiobooks in Overcast. Because I, I like also being able to consolidate something so that now I have a, a single icon, which is Overcast for spoken material. So it, it's not necessarily divided into two different icons. Mm -hmm. And I can now, again, for books that I have made for myself and not books that I have gotten from anywhere else, I have a playlist in Overcast, which is just for audiobooks. So that when I open up Overcast, it's like, okay, I have my three standard playlists, and one of them is now audiobooks, so I can listen to audiobooks there. And I like that. I like just having the one place to go for spoken material. So even if Audible were to come out with a much better looking icon, I think it would forever remain in the other folder. Like I will use it to browse for audiobooks, but I'm not necessarily going to have it on, on front and center because now Overcast is my place for spoken material. The only thing I will say is that listening to audiobooks with the smart speed feature, which is the whole reason that I use Overcast, is a strange experience because I think when Marco, the guy who makes Overcast, was testing out smart speed, he was listening to podcasts and deciding how much of the space should be taken out between uh, words or between sentences. And when I'm using smart speed with podcasts, I almost never even notice if it's on. Sometimes I'll, I'll have to look and say, do I even have smart speed on? Because it shortens it, but it shortens it in a very natural way. But when you're listening to an audiobook, audiobook narrators are speaking in a very different cadence. It's not a conversation. And a couple of the audiobooks I have listened to, it has the feeling of, man, I know smart speed is on because it feels like they're talking very, very fast. So that, that's just my personal experience is it feels like 
the knob or the calibration on smart speed with audiobooks is is way high because audiobook narrators have much bigger spaces between their words and much bigger spaces between their sentences. So it feels like I have it on, you know, maybe one and a half X uh, instead of just one X. So it, I think I'm still going to use it, but it, it, it is taking a little more getting used to than I thought listening to audiobooks with smart speed. Audiobooks that I've recorded, of course. Yeah, I have listened to an audiobook in Overcast, and mm-hmm. it was a very different sounding experience. Okay, so it's not just me. I'm not being crazy it here. Sounds, well, it sounds strange because it's just one person. Mm, maybe that's what it is. And, and so it's just like, it just sounds strange because you would expect that person to take a break at some point, but they never do. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Although I have to say, one of my absolute pet peeves is... I almost don't want to say this out loud because when people hear me say it, they won't. They will. They will not be able to help but tune into it. But I'm still going to ruin some of people listening's experiences. I hate it in audiobooks when the audio engineers leave in the narrator taking a breath. I am reading a sentence. This is a second sentence that I'm now reading. This is the third sentence, and it's like, ah, oh, god damn it! Right? Like, why didn't you take that out? Um. <laughs> Whenever yeah, so I do narration, like pre-recorded mm-hmm. narration that I've done for shows in the past, mm-hmm. I do remove that. I remove the breath because it's it's infuriating. Yeah, it's absolutely infuriating. But I, I think you might be on. Just heard you breathe. <laughs> yeah, now you're gonna hear me breathe every time. <laughs> yeah, because we're all sacks of meat that have to take in oxygen; otherwise, it doesn't work. <gasps> but uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I think I think you might be right that the smart speed sounds weird when it's just a single person continuously talking because you are expecting that break and it never comes. I think that might be what it is. But anyway, I'm still I'm still going to try it out and I, I want to get used to it. But it's one of these things where you you think in advance, oh, I'll definitely like this thing, and then you try it and you go, ooh, it's not quite what I was what I was imagining. I know Marco will never do it because he has an Apple like take on adding options into any of his software but this is the one time i feel like man i really wish i could dial back smart speed a little bit on this playlist but that's the kind of option he will never add to overcast even though i might want it yeah because i don't even know what that is like how do you mean dial it back like i don't want it off but i want it on i just want it in the middle of off and on well, my, under- <laughs> my understanding is he has it calibrated to do something like remove 40 percent of the silence whenever there is silence. And so I feel like, ooh, I'd want to dial that back on an audio book to maybe 15% or 20%, you know, right. speed it up a little, but not all the way. Because it does also just drive me crazy how slow people, especially nonfiction narrators, sometimes talk in audiobooks. Anyway, that's enough of that. Do you have any thoughts on Alphabet? If, have you even seen this? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Mike, I'm, I am on top of the news all the time. Yeah? I'm a news junkie. I I, uh, I follow everything. Actually, I, I did hear about the alphabet thing. If you didn't hear about this, I was going to be like really surprised about this. So this is for anybody that doesn't know. Uh, Google is kind of breaking up their operations a little bit. No, and- that's not even the way to describe it. That's a terrible way to describe okay. it. I don't even know anything about this story, and I wouldn't say that at all. They're, they're forming an umbrella corporation which owns Google. It's not Google breaking up into a bunch of little companies. Well, but a lot of subsidiaries of Google are now leaving the Google umbrella and going into the Alphabet umbrella. So they won't be right. related to Google anymore, like they used to be. 
Right, but Google used to be acting as the umbrella corporation yeah. for all the stuff that they bought. And now they're just saying, we're going to actually have a real umbrella corporation called Alphabet. Okay. I was just terribly rude to you there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so Alphabet now owns Google, the new Google, which has less parts in it. So they've Alphabet has now taken and owns companies like Nest, which was owned by Google, is now owned by Alphabet mm-hmm. and is separate from Google. So I find it very peculiar that YouTube is still owned by Google, even though YouTube has its own CEO anyway. Uh it, that is something my brain can't completely wrap around, but yeah, mm. I just wondered: do you, does this is there anything in this that interests you? I just when I when I heard about it, I first thought it was some kind of joke. People were like, "Oh, Google's been renamed as Alphabet." Even when I read the stuff on their blog and looked at the website, it felt like a joke initially because it's so strange. It it, it didn't seem real at, at first. But yes, the, the, the process I also think is funny is that Google created this little company called Alphabet and then Alphabet bought back Google is the way they have to yeah, do these I, things. It's very funny. so hilarious. We're yeah. going to create a company which is going to buy us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, what money is it buying us with? Oh, the money we gave it to buy Our us with. Our money. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's all very strange, but um, I haven't. I've only just looked into the barest bit of this because, of course, I was curious about does this affect me with YouTube or anything. So that's why I, I looked into it a little bit. But I, I think it's actually a kind of simple and and brilliant idea in in the same way that the Google search engine was just very simple and worked well. So I I give this a big thumbs up. I I think this is a good way to do things to. To not have all of their various projects feel like they are tied to the Google brand, right? So it's it's not Google self-driving cars and Google everything. This this I think allows them to do the the company version of what I think pe- people should do, which is have lots of little experiments, many of which are unrelated to each other, and to see what works out well. So I, I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of this, and I also think it's it's pretty clear from. The fact that they bought, uh, what is it, it's abc.xyz as their domain name, mm-hmm. that they they don't have any intentions of pushing Alphabet as the brand. I, I, I don't think you're going to see anything on the Google homepage, which says Google brought to you by Alphabet. I think it, it looks like it really is acting as a holding mm-hmm. company that then buys up or creates all of their various experiments. I believe that I did see them say somewhere that Alphabet is not a consumer-facing company. While I do think it's a good idea, the Alphabet and the whole G is for Google, N is for Nest, S is for Shinehart Wig Company, this whole thing that, that they seem to be doing, it does feel a little bit like the villainous corporation in a dystopian future where it's like, Look at how happy we are, but everything is actually terrifying because B is for Boston Dynamics. You know, it's it, the, the robot murdering company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Boston Dynamics, absolutely terrifying, <laughs> but the inevitable future of humanity. Creates uh, robot dogs that can fall <laughs> over and stand up, which is one of the most horrible things you will ever see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, you should, I mean that's, the, that's their old stuff. You should see their new humanoid stuff. It's, it's like it's like kill it with fire is the, is the reaction to seeing some of their, their humanoid robots. But um, so, yeah, I, I, that's the bottom line. I think it's a good idea. I think it's a nice, clean, simple idea that allows 
Google to do stuff that doesn't end up tarnishing Google's own brand when their projects don't work out. Because I think that's just a natural thing that happens to companies. You feel like, oh, Google tries all these things and then they kill all these things. They have no focus. Uh, and I've, I've even said similar things about Amazon. I feel like, oh, Amazon does all this crazy stuff and none of it works out. Even though I think that's actually a good strategy. But, but with a company, I think it helps to dissociate yourself from a lot of your experiments. So it doesn't feel like, oh, you're always doing all these things that don't work out. Because most things don't work out, but you only care about the things that do. It also helps Alphabet uh, when they buy companies like Nest for it not to seem like they're just trying to collect all of your data, whether they are or not. But when it was Google doing it, people would tarnish it with this idea that, oh, now they're going to control your home temperature to try and sell you air conditioning units. Like, you know, there was this like fear that people had that I think this might help alleviate if the companies are a bit more separate. When I was in Hawaii, I actually stayed in a place that had a Nest thermostat in it and the fact that it is connected to google and and as part of google it made me feel creepier about the nest thermostat it's like oh right there's a camera in the nest thermostat and the per like the the company that owns the place that we're staying in can look through the camera but it's also all tied in with google services it's just a it was a little bit weird and i was i was very aware of that nest thermostat in in the main area where we're staying it's like the little HAL 9000 on the wall. and Do they have cameras in? I don't think they have cameras in. The, the newer versions have a little camera in them. They make a camera called the Nest Cam. Oh, yeah? Which is, a, which is different to the Nest thermostat. Maybe I am getting confused, but I'm pretty sure. I think you are. Nest. I'm just Googling. It has an infrared sensor. Okay, so it has an infrared sensor, but it doesn't have an actual camera. It doesn't have a camera that somebody could see you through. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad. We, I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. Disassociating the things works with what we've just been talking about with this confusion over whether the Nest has a camera in it. Because I feel like I just assume Google is the kind of company that would be like, "Yeah, put cameras in it." <laughs> Where, right. Whereas if Nest was some separate feeling company, it'd be like, "Oh, the neat little thermostat isn't that great." Like they used to be when they originally were around, right before Google bought them. Yeah. Exactly. I would have never given it a second thought that, oh, was there a camera in the Nest thermostat? But now Google owns it and I just, my brain just assumes like, oh yeah, it's it's spying on me and listening to me and sending everything into Google. And Google's going to make sure that the next time I'm, I'm seeing an ad, it's for exactly the thing that my wife and I were talking about in the main room of the house. <laughs> you don't want that. You don't want that kind of thing no, following you around. No. Last week we spoke about script writing. Mm-hmm. And the kind of what goes in before you start creating the video. So today, I actually want to talk a little bit about animating and assembling your YouTube videos. Okay. So you have a, a quite distinctive animation style, I think, um, with your little stick figure gray and stuff like that. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it didn't necessarily start off that way, but you developed it over time. But from the very first kind of Grey Explains video, there was always animation. It was always animated mm -hmm. in some description. Um, why did you decide to go with animation and not just like film yourself in front of a whiteboard talking? I did animation on the screen for two reasons. The first is that I was just very familiar, as we discussed last time, with making presentations in this style for classrooms. And so never when I was making a presentation for a classroom setting did I film me talking to camera as part of that presentation because that would be insanity 
because I would be in the room giving the presentation. So I had no experience filming myself and it just, it would have been a, a totally different thing to do to try to figure out lighting and, and the audio. Like, it was just entirely out of my abilities at that time. The other reason is that right from the start, I, I did want to keep my face off of my YouTube channel because I did have a couple other little videos that I did before the UK one, which really kicked things off. And in all of those videos, my face is not on camera as well. And the reasoning for that is because I was still employed at that time in various schools. And I wanted to, as much as possible, keep a distance between my employment and my projects on the side. Now, of course, that distance couldn't be complete. Like, I'm still using my actual name. Like, that's the name of my YouTube channel. But I thought that keeping the face off was just a little bit a little bit more distance so that maybe if a student happened to see one of my videos, it would be less likely they would actually realize it was me in the video if they're not seeing me. So yeah, I just, I wanted to keep things apart. I mean, maybe this is a, a bit of a story for another time, but the, the short version is that I, I left schools twice under circumstances where I was trying to become self-employed. And the first time didn't work out, but the second time did, which was YouTube. But in both cases, the people at my schools had no idea that I was working on side projects. I never mentioned it to anybody. I never brought it up as a topic of conversation that I did things on the side. Like, I just would not ever want anyone at work to know that. Because if people at your place of employment know that you want to be independent and to do things on your own, at best, that makes them start treating you like a non-entity who has no future at this place. Yep. Like that's the best possible outcome. And the worst outcome is that you have a target on your head as, as someone who can potentially cause problems for the institution. And, and so that's, that's why I kept it silent and my advice to anybody who's really trying to do this is don't, don't tell anybody at your work about how you want to be a self-employed person. I just think you can only do that if and when you already have a pretty solid plan in place for leaving. But even the second time when I was doing YouTube, when my income was enough that I could safely leave teaching, I still didn't tell anybody at my work why I was quitting. <laughs> it was just yeah. like, oh, I'm just quitting. Because I just didn't want to connect it at all. But yeah, you, I, I mean, I don't know. You, what did you, because I, I know that you were doing your podcasting thing. You were in a similar position. Like you had a somewhat public career yep. that you were doing while you're at your big corporate job. But may, <laughs> I'm just realizing I should have asked you this first. Did you tell people at your work? Like, have I just pooped all over what you did while you were at uh, your company? Well, it's slightly different. So mm -hmm. part when I first started doing what I do, part of um, the employment rules at my company is it, if you want to start a business of your own whilst you're mm -hmm. under the employment, you have to have it approved by a senior manager. Oh, interesting. Because 
because I worked. So this is when I worked in branch banking. So I worked mm-hmm. in a bank branch. Um, I kind of worked my way up to a branch manager, but this was before that point when I was kind of like a senior member of a team. Mm-hmm. Because there's so much money around, right? You're actually dealing with real money. Mm-hmm. If you have a business on the side, it's a really great way to hide the money you're stealing. Oh, right. Of course. Of course. So you have to be deemed as, as much as somebody can be, a trustworthy individual. Because Mm -hmm. I learned over my time, you can't trust anyone. Oh, yeah? Is that that Mike's advice on life? Don't trust anyone. When there's cash around. When cash is just lying around, Mm -hmm. you may think that someone's a friend and you can trust them. But then you find out that they were stealing money. Like it. Mm -hmm. So there's this big taboo around it, but... My boss was very gracious. She understood my situation and was happy to agree that it was all okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I tried to keep it to myself as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the secret was out, but I never shared any details. I didn't right. tell anybody where to find my stuff. Exactly. Like I just kept it all to myself. But then. When I wanted to get out of the branch stuff and move into my marketing role, mm-hmm. I had to use my on-the-side stuff as a reason why I would be good at marketing. Mm-hmm. So the secret was completely out. There was nothing I could do about it. Mm-hmm. Because I had to like have interviews with multiple managers where I could show them the types of things that I do and why I think mm-hmm. that would make me a good marketing candidate. So then they knew about it and they spoke about it and everyone knew about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Luckily, in the scenario that I was in, everyone was kind of cool about it. And anytime anybody ever spoke about it, they were actually just interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still, I never brought it up. Uh, and I agree with you completely. For as much as you can keep it to yourself, keep it to yourself because there is no upside. Like, yeah. literally no upside. Because, as you say, you either, anytime you speak up about something, you get labeled as a troublemaker because you don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's layoffs and stuff, you can be put to the top of that list. Yep. And one of the things that you'll find out when you, you're starting to start a self-employed career is that your current employment becomes the way that you fund that. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that anymore, you can't achieve the goals that you want. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. It like With- becomes the vehicle which enables the side projects. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, <laughs> I would never... You know, tell my employers this, but I, I viewed, uh, particularly in the later years, my teaching is as exactly that of this is what is financially supporting me while I am attempting to bootstrap my actual career that I want. <laughs> if you say that, you you just you're just in trouble at work. So that's why you have to keep that stuff to yourself. And of course, if you're doing something publicly on the internet, there's always going to be a a, a limit to that. Like there, there's there are ways that people can find out what you're up to, but yeah, just try to minimize it as as much as possible. So, yeah, go, going back to it, that's that's why I didn't have my face in the video was was partly just thinking about anything I can do to make it less clear that this is me is something that I I want to I definitely want to do, but yeah, t- I mean, I was really kind of amazed because I was still doing. YouTube at my last school for about a year and a half and at that stage I was getting videos with hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of views and I did know that a couple of students knew about it 
But as far as I could tell, no one on the, the teaching staff ever knew, for, for which I was always hugely relieved. But I was also just worried about the, the day when this conversation comes up with a manager at some point of like, oh, what's this thing that you're doing with YouTube? They ask innocently, but actually have already watched all of your videos. Exactly right. Or they, or they want to know. They want to know why, but they're going to pretend like they don't know anything about it. It's um, managers in some ways are weirdly deluded about the corporate structure and about how things actually work at companies. But um, many managers would still be aware that lots of their employees, if they could become self-employed, would do so. All right. So a manager may know this in their mind, but it's still different once it comes out in the open that you in particular are a person who is in acting plans that may have you leave the company at some day and yeah that that's why i said it at at best they treat you like an indifferent person who has no future there and at worst you're at the top of all of the lists for getting booted out of there so that's why anybody with side projects keep them quiet hello again it's time to talk about another great sponsor this week it is Hover. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names. Me and Gray talk quite a bit, just in general, as well as in this episode, about ideas and projects and stuff like that. If you have a project these days, it's probably going to be on the web. And if it's not going to be a web project, you will most likely want a website for it. And the best way to secure the domain name that you want to put your website with is hover they make it super simple to search for domains you just go to their website you type the domain you're looking for or some keywords and hover will find the best matches available and show you what they have they have all of the domain options that you'd expect like .com .co .me .net .us .uk they even have some crazy ones as well like .plumbing .coffee .academy .ceo everything whatever you want Hover have it, and their .com domains start at just $12.99, so they're really greatly priced. And all of Hover's domains include who is privacy if the domain supports it. They will just enable that for you for free. Now, what this means is that your private information will be kept private because when you register a domain, if you don't have who is privacy, your name, your address, your phone number, it can all be made available for people to find. A lot of other registrars will make you pay extra to protect your own private information, which is crazy. Hover don't believe in that they just give it to you they just give you this protection because they think that's the right thing to do and this is the kind of company they are another fantastic thing about hover is they have no hold no wait no transfer telephone support if you give hover a call someone's going to pick up it's going to be a human and that person is going to be able to help you they're not going to pass you around to 20 different departments they are there they are ready and they are happy to take your call. But if you're the type of person that prefers more robotic information, they have great support documents and guides on their website and they also have fantastic email support too, which I've used a bunch in the past. And if you have a bunch of domains elsewhere, you can actually switch them all for free and you don't even need to worry about the hassle of going to your current provider and trying to unlock your domains and get them over. You just ask Hover to do it for you and they'll take care of it. This is what they call their valet service. No matter how many domains they have, they will transfer them. So I want you to go and try out hover.com today for the domain that you've been looking for. You want to use the code schedule, S-C-H-E-D-U-L-E, at checkout, and you'll get yourself 10% off your first purchase at hover.com and show your support for this very program. Thank you so much to Hover for their support of Cortex. So you you remained, like, and you continued to, to have the style of animation, which was you would display things on the screen to highlight what mm -hmm. you were talking about. 
But when did the grey stick figure character come in to play? And why did you choose to do this? I'm looking through the videos and I can't actually remember which was the first one. But I think I may have had a dozen or so videos before I ever had a little stick figure me on screen. I really wish I could remember offhand where it was. I think it might have been the 2012 video. The, the 2012 and the end of the world might have been one of the first ones where I had the stick figure me appear. Yeah, so, so the earlier videos were almost entirely picture slideshows. Where it's just pictures, pictures, pictures that I'm putting up on the screen. But there's a limit to how much you can do with pictures. Because people think it's the reverse. People think that the pictures must be really easy and the drawings must be really time-consuming. And it's actually the reverse, because trying to find the exact picture that you want to have on the screen at a particular moment is very, very hard. I mean, you, you think like, oh, there's a million pictures of Las Vegas, for example. But when I'm talking about something, I, I want a, a, a picture with a particular look. And so I eventually learned over time that if I can just draw stuff, even if the drawings aren't very good, I can still have it convey exactly what I want instead of trying to filter through hundreds of pictures about a topic and find the couple that can work with what I'm saying. So I think that's, that's why as time has gone on, my videos have on average become much less photographs and way more drawings because I can make the drawings what I want them to be. Do you have like a way that you describe the style? Uh, CGP Grey style. Do you like? Do you really think of it that way? <laughs> like, if you see other videos now, as I've seen it, videos that look like yours, like do you consider that the style that you created? Well, it's okay to say yes. The answer is is no because I didn't create. And I don't own the idea of, oh, it's PowerPoint with a bunch of pictures. But, there, but it, it's a weird situation where I do come across videos that sometimes very explicitly say that they're trying to copy my style. And that's always just a little weird to see. Um, yeah, it's, it's a strange thing to, to come across. But I don't own doing just pictures. But it's very funny because I, I sometimes see people say like, oh, there's all of these videos that are in this style on Reddit. They'll have a little discussion. And then the person eventually realizes that they've actually just seen all of my videos, but they were thinking they were all done by different people doing them all in the same style, <laughs> which, is, which is a funny thing to realize. Because like, yeah, I've seen that conversation happen a few times on Reddit where someone's like, oh, man, all these guys sound the same. And someone will link to them all of my various videos and they'll go, oh, they sound the same because it's the same guy. I didn't even know. But I, I, I think, you know, there's, there's always some kind of line about what is similar, what, like what is too similar and what, it, what is not. I mean, I've, I've said before that one of the things that really made me think, oh, I can do a little slide presentation online was uh, Yahtzee who does zero punctuation videos. Do you know Yahtzee? I do, yeah. Yeah. So he, he does these video game reviews, but his... He's doing a fast talking style and he has very, very simple animations up on screen. And I've always really liked his videos. Even if you don't play any of the games, his, his video reviews of them are entertaining in and of themselves. And 
it was watching his stuff that made me think, oh, you don't have to be on camera and you don't have to have great visuals if the thing that you're talking about is being talked about in an interesting way. So I, I would say that that his videos are very influential on the start of my own videos. But I would also say that I'm not copying Yahtzee's style. And I'm also not doing a thing where I'm saying, oh, I too am going to be a video game reviewer, right? I'm doing something yeah. in a very different area. But there's, but there's definitely an influence there. I can see the influence in the stick figure characters. But I would say that I think that your videos are more, much more complex um, than, than Yahtzee's videos. The, the animations that I do now are more complex yeah. than the animations that he does. But, it, but it was, what I mean is it was more just seeing that I don't have animation skills. I don't have any drawing skills. But Yahtzee was a great example of how that's not really relevant. No. Nobody, nobody cares that Yahtzee's animation skills are very little. Because it doesn't matter to the enjoyment of those videos. They're, they're excellent videos, regardless of the animation skill. I want to talk about the tools and software that you mm -hmm. use, but I think that there's a step before that, which is the planning of the animation. Mm -hmm. Do you storyboard it? Uh, okay, sort of. So, so here, here's what happens. When I'm writing the script, for the first, let's say, 50% of the, of the drafts that I'm doing, I'm just trying to get something that is vaguely coherent and readable to any human being from the gigantic mess that we talked about last time. But once it gets into this stage where I can read it out loud in a single session, I start thinking very consciously about what is going to be on the screen when I'm saying each of these things. So the second half of the drafts that is very much in my mind and when I'm writing it, I almost have like a little, a little image in my brain about what's going to be on the screen. Because if you write a script without thinking what's going to be on the screen, you are going to be in a serious amount of trouble when you actually go to try to animate that thing. It's very, very easy to get yourself into phrasings of sentences that are totally fine if you're reading them in a book or an article, but that do not work at all if it's going to be going with an animation. So I, I then try, I'm trying to work on the script, keeping that in mind. But when it gets very, very close to the end, and I think, okay, I'm a few drafts away, one of the things that I will do is, it's not a storyboard, because when a, a traditional storyboard is a, a rough sketch of what's going to be on the screen. Instead, what I do is, uh, on the computer, I'll have the script on one side of the screen, and then I'll still open up my good old friend Keynote, have it on the other side of the screen. And I'll go through the script paragraph by paragraph. And I'll put a slide or two or three for each paragraph. And I will write a brief sentence about what is going to be on the screen at this point in the script. Now, the reason I do that is because it's very easy to trick yourself into thinking, oh, I've got this. I, I, I have in my mind something that's going to be on the screen at every single moment. But I force myself to write it down for each paragraph because I will sometimes catch out little sections where I realize, oh, I actually don't have any idea what's going to be on the screen for these three sentences. And three sentences is an eternity 
in an animation. Like you have to have something that relates to what you're talking about then. So that's why I do this thing with Keynote where I force myself to write it down in words what's going to be on the screen. You know, this is going to be uh, a fort with a couple of stick figures in it. This is going to be a king holding his crown and it falls off. Just very, very brief descriptions. But I, I, don't, um, I don't draw anything because if, again, I have no artistic skills, so I have no ability to create a sketch. I, I only have the ability to create exactly what I make. That is the best that I can do, and it is also the worst that I can do. I have no in-between in skills. So that's why I write it out in, in little words to have an idea about what's going to be where. When you started off, what what tools were you using? Like, I assume you probably didn't start for Wacom. I assume that there are software tools that you use now, which maybe didn't exist or you didn't know about. Like, how did you even begin? Uh, I might have had a Wacom at the time because I've I've always I've always had some problems with RSI. I think ever since college, I've always been switching various input methods. Sometimes I use trackballs. Sometimes I use Wacom tablets. Sometimes I use a regular mouse. I switch it up so that I'm not always using the same thing all the time for every single thing. So I might have had the pen tablet. But in terms of software, Keynote, almost entirely like we described last time. And then audio-wise, I used GarageBand to just record it on my iMac. And <laughs> GarageBand was totally fine because it was free and it was on my Mac and I could just use it, and it was relatively simple. And then I used iMovie to put the two things together, the audio track from GarageBand, and then the, the video track from Keynote. So I could play a Keynote on the screen, and I was recording what was happening on the screen and putting those two things together in iMovie. And that's how I was syncing up the video to the audio. What I love about that is that all of the tools that you used are tools that are now available for free with any Mac. I think about this all the time. And it's one of the things I really like about YouTube. I mean, I just I just like it. I like it about the world in general now, which is that there are no gatekeepers and the tools to do things are at your hands. They might not be the best tools. Like I, I wouldn't use iMovie and GarageBand today but they're free and they're there. And if you put time into them, you can learn them and do amazing things. And you can just, you know, people always talk about, oh, don't you think it's harder to start a career on YouTube now than it was years ago? And my answer is no, I don't actually think it's any harder to start now than it was years ago. I sometimes think people use that as an excuse not to start is like, oh, well, every, you know, everything that could ever exist exists now. It's like, no, it doesn't. If you think you can make something that is good, you have free tools, almost certainly on any computer that you own, and you can just make a YouTube account tomorrow. And then if your video is good, you submit it to Reddit and it can be on the front page of Reddit in 12 hours. You know, it's, it's an amazing, amazing world that we live in. And I think to, you know, to make a video like I make 30 years ago would, would take millions of dollars in equipment and broadcasting rights and all kinds of crazy things. Like it's, it's an amazing world, Mike. It really is. It really is. It is. I agree completely. That's why I find it so fascinating to hear that like you began with, you're basically hacking together tools to work the way that you want. 
I yeah. don't. I didn't even know, and I still don't know. Can you export a keynote as like a movie file? Is that how you did that? Uh, I don't. I don't think Keynote had it at the time. I know that now you can export a keynote as a QuickTime file, uh, but I think at the time I had to record the screen to actually grab it, and I was see that's so awesome because you were hacking it together, and and I love that because that's the attitude I think which is so awesome about this kind of stuff. You just had this idea. You were like, well, how can I do this? Well, I know how to use these four pieces of software. I'm sure I can kind of sticky tape it all together and, and mm-hmm. spit out a video, which millions and millions of people have now seen. <laughs> that UK one made with iMovie is now at uh, seven and a half million views. Yeah. Which is just crazy. That changed your life. It totally did. I, I feel very fortunate to be an adult person in a time when the tools are available and the gatekeepers are gone for many things and and you can just you can just try stuff it it was a thing that with some of my more able students i was always trying to impress this point upon them if they would say things like oh i want to i want to be a a video game designer or i want to be a writer it's like just you just start right now (laughs) i i know you're in i know you're in high school and i know that you think you need to go to college and learn about this stuff, but trust me, you don't. You don't need to do that. You can just get started now. And nobody cares how old you are if you write a good article. Like it's not relevant. Or you know, you can go download Xcode right now and start messing around with computer programming. And I just I just felt sometimes my students had this notion of, oh, someone needs to give me permission to do this thing, or I need to be formally trained to do this thing. It's like you don't, you don't. It's it's there for the taking. and You do not need to be ordained by the keeper yeah. of creativity. Yeah, or, or just, just any, kind of, any kind of production. Like it's just out there for so many jobs and so many fields. And, you know, I mean, like being a, a YouTube creator is a kind of career now in, in the way that it, it was not so much when I first started. But it's the same, like nobody, there was no... YouTube university that I went to for degrees like you're just making things and then you kind of fall into it and that's why I think there, there's so many things like that in the world if you're interested in something pursue it and and maybe something will come out of it and, and maybe it won't but but just you know give it a try but yeah I, I'm not sure I was ever entirely successful at convincing any 17 or 18 year olds to do a thing that they wouldn't have have done anyway <laughs> but I was yeah. But when, I, like I said, you know, a few of my more able students, when they'd say things like, I want to be a writer, it's like, do you have a blog? And I'm like, oh, no, I don't have a blog. Like, make a blog right now. <laughs> like, you know, go make a blog and just start writing stuff and go for it. Yep. I've had, I had that exact same conversation with my brother a couple of years ago. He, want, he would love to be a sports journalist. And mm-hmm. he was looking at trying to write for magazines or you was applying for things with the BBC, like for internships. And I was like, okay, do you have a web address? Like, where is your blog? <laughs> that would be my first question too, yeah. Exactly. I set him up with a Squarespace account, I bought him a domain <laughs> on Hover, ding, ding. And I uh, I just set him up. I was like, just do this. Just write this stuff. And he's got some little bits and bobs from it now because when he applies to places, and this is so important, if you want to do this kind of thing, even if you want to be in the world where you have an actual job, right? But mm-hmm. you want it to be a creative kind of thing, show you can do it. Like that is so important because then when he was applying to these places, everybody asks, give me examples of your work. Mm-hmm. And it's so much better if you can say, oh, I do it already. I'm not writing something for you right now. Like take a look at the stuff I do every week. Exactly. Anyway, 
<laughs> let's get back down off our soapboxes for a moment. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What software do you use now? Over the years, I transitioned from iMovie and GarageBand and Keynote as the primary tools that I was using to now I use a, a, the most techie of the programs. is I, I use a program called Inkscape for almost everything that I draw. And Inkscape is a vector drawing program. I, uh, I started with ages ago because I had some familiarity from uh, Linux, uh, which it originally grew out of. And it's a, it's a free open source program. And that's what I use for the drawings. And I am crazy fast in Inkscape. Like I can draw up something just very, very fast with that. Whereas if, if, if you try to draw a stick figure in Keynote, like I hope you have a couple hours because it's actually really fiddly to do. Whereas if you're using a, a program that is actually designed for drawing, it's way faster. So I quite like Inkscape. I do sometimes think about switching away from it, but it is very well suited to my purposes at this moment. What would you look at? Something like Illustrator or something like that? I, I'm always just surveying the field sure. because I know that I, I happen to just land on Inkscape because at the time I had no money. <laughs> Yeah. No, I get it. So that's why I originally used it because it was free and open source. And I always just feel like, oh, maybe I should be using Illustrator or uh, on the opposite end. I, I'm, I always have my eye on OmniGraffle as a possible alternative, primarily because OmniGraffle would allow me to do some animations on my iPad, which is something I might be interested in. If Apple comes out with a bigger iPad and nice stylus, hint, hint, Apple, Tim Cook, you listening? Editing on my iPad is something that is attractive to me, presuming that I have uh, the right tools eventually. But I, I stick with Inkscape because I'm so fast and because I, I know how to use it so well. Any particular video is never the video that I feel like, oh, let me try doing something with Illustrator now and vastly multiplying the amount of time it's going to take. Right. So I, I may end up using Inkscape for the rest of my career, even if I'm always interested in what other alternatives exist. It took me a long time to switch to Logic. That, that, that's where I was going next, is that I also use Logic for the audio. And that switch took me way too long to do. Yep. And I was using GarageBand right up until uh, when the Hello Internet podcast came out. Because when I was thinking about doing that podcast with Brady, I thought, okay, if I'm going to be working with hours and hours of audio... This is the point at which it now makes sense to learn logic. And then I would also get the benefit of if I learned logic for the podcast, I can use logic for the audio for the videos. Mm -hmm. And that was a difficult transition, but boy, has it paid off. Like, man, oh, am I yeah. a lot faster in logic. I mean, the, the whole audio portion of making those YouTube videos used to be a really big deal. It used to be like a couple days of many, many takes and lots of fiddling around with editing and trying to get it just right. And now, man, I can bang out the audio for one of my YouTube videos in a couple hours in the morning. I don't even think about it. Like, I don't even plan about it. And... That is without a doubt 100% attributable to biting the bullet and learning how to use logic. I was really breaking GarageBand. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet. If you were doing real uh, podcasts in GarageBand, it is not designed for that. No, and I, I, my thing was just because logic, the jump from GarageBand to logic is one of the biggest technical jumps I've ever made. It is, mm -hmm. it, you may as well be going from audio to video, like, because it just mm -hmm. none of it makes any sense. Like, it really is a huge 
thing to learn if you've never tried to learn it before because logic is not made for what we use it for like it's made for music production yeah i, I will mention um, a slight conflict of interest here because linda is a sometimes hello internet sponsor but i i really wish someone at linda would make a logic for podcasters tutorial because i was i was always looking at the various tutorials on how to use logic and it was they're always just designed for music. They're coming from a music perspective. And I like I just want someone to make a two-hour course on here's everything you need to know about logic for podcasters. Because I've I've cobbled it together myself, but I still feel like, man, I would I would really like to see someone who knows what they're doing really go through it. So like we use logic because it has a lot of the features that we want. Um, but it it doesn't it's not made for that. And, but yeah. we can kind of cobble together enough of what we need to make a podcast that sounds good. Now we can talk about stories about, you know, walking uphill both ways. I used to record and edit podcasts on an 11-inch MacBook Air. I am at my parents' house, obviously, and I am using the 15-inch Mac Pro, which normally lives in my office. Uh, I brought it with me. That's the one piece of equipment I will move. I don't have a redundant computer. I'll bring the computer with me. But when I was trying to edit the last episode of Hello Internet... I've gotten really used to my big Retina iMac, and I, and I opened up the Hello Internet file on this computer, and I was like, "This is barbaric!" Right? Like, how did, how did I ever, how did I ever edit anything on this tiny, gorgeous, fifteen-inch Retina screen? And like, this is unusable. I was really shocked at, at how much of a difference it made. You, you get so used to extra screen real estate very fast just reminding myself like you know you used to also use an 11 inch non-retina screen and you just you just get used to the better tools very very quickly but it's um, weird isn't it it's weird because i i still feel like i struggle as much as i did then you know but obviously Mm -hmm. i'm obviously not (laughs) (laughs) could you give me that thing right now and i'll just quit (laughs) yeah it's like there is the uh there's the hedonistic treadmill where you get used to more and more comfy lifestyles as you as you go up in civilization and you get used mm-hmm. to it very fast and you just start assuming like oh of course central heating is just the norm it's like no it's not the norm at all even if you thought it was amazing the first time you had it and i think there's a there's something like that for productivity tools that when you upgrade to your new productivity tools and they make a difference you go wow this makes a huge difference and you're really aware of it for about a week and then you just treat that as the new normal as well the final new tool that i use now is final cut x for putting together the animations from Inkscape and the audio from Logic. So that's the the final piece that I use. And again, that also made a huge difference because I can't remember why, but I do remember it, it used to be hugely stressful trying to edit the movies together in iMovie because ah, I wish I could remember the details, but for some reason I could never go back that if I edited the first 30 seconds of something i had to just leave that as it was i if i went back and tried to make changes it messed up everything and and so it was just hugely stressful trying to make sure that each 10 second segment was perfect before i moved on you know and now with final cut i'm just constantly changing stuff in the beginning or like you know what i'm going to make a last minute change to this audio bloop you know cut that little segment out switch things in or you know, uh, adding new animations if I discover I have a little bit of time. So now I'm just like reckless with making changes all over the place. 
and again, it's it's from using a using a professional tool that allows me to do that. I decided to make the change when Apple did their big redesign of of Final Cut X. Many, many people in the industry complained about that big changeover, but I thought, wow, opportunity for me. Like Apple burned it all to the ground and started over. And I was like, yes, I, I am one of those people who is now just getting into this industry. And I'm very happy that they got rid of however the old Final Cut worked. And so I, like, I've never known anything else. Syncing together the audio and the video, I can do so quickly now that it almost feels too fast because I feel like, oh, I really like working with Final Cut X. I-, I wish this part of it took longer, but I can actually do it in, you know, maybe under an hour at most when I have everything all set to go. I have to say, because people will be upset, I think it's 10. I think it is 10. I don't care. I know you don't, but I, I know you don't care. I really know that. But people will complain to me if I don't say this. So I have yeah. to say it, and so then people at least know that I am telling you. Uh, that it is 10 and you can call it X if you like because I believe that that is your choice because it's actually not the 10th version and this was a whole big thing that I was a proponent for X in the beginning because yeah. they went from like 7 to to 10 which doesn't make exactly. any sense which they also did for Logic Pro uh, and that was yep. when I moved over for the exact same reasons they took it from a mm-hmm. horrible interface to an interface that made sense so it pushed me into doing mm-hmm. it yep just like the next version of uh, Apple software is I believe it's OSX Snowsemity? Is that the next version that's coming out? Is that what you call it? I'm not even going there. I'm just <laughs> leaving that as it is. That's just going to stay like that. Perfect. This week's episode of Cortex is also brought to you very kindly by Squarespace. You can start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code Cortex at checkout and you'll get yourself 10% off. Squarespace build it beautiful. If you've been listening to us today, talk about the things that we love to do and talk about side projects and that kind of stuff, and you have one of your own and you need a website for it, Squarespace is the place to go. In my opinion, if you want to get a website up and running, like you want a blog or you want a store or a portfolio, whatever you want a website for, the quickest and easiest way is to use Squarespace. And it's really awesome. I have used Squarespace for so many of my projects over the years, as has Gray, because they give you everything you're going to need, all of the power that you're going to need without giving you any of the things that you have to worry about. You don't have to worry about hosting, scaling, what to do if you get stuck with something. You don't need to bother doing any coding, whether you know how to do it or not. You don't need to know any coding or have any skill level in web design to work with Squarespace. They have intuitive and easy to use tools. You can make your website look and feel exactly how you want with their fantastic drag and drop interface. Squarespace power their websites with state-of-the-art technology. This ensures security and stability. All Squarespace's websites look fantastic because they have these really great templates that you can base yours on. They all feature responsive web designs so they look great on all sizes of device and they have different types of templates which are really catered to different types of professions. Like if you've got a band or a restaurant or you're planning an event like a wedding, they have templates for all of those things. But they also have these fantastically adaptable templates that you can fit to your project no matter what it is. Squarespace have 24-7 support with live chat and email. If you get stuck with something, they have teams located all over the world that are there ready and waiting to help you. They also have their commerce platform. So me and Gray have been talking about the stickers that we're selling at relay.fm store 
for this show, that is actually powered by Squarespace. They have a fantastic system. You can put all your inventory in. You can sell physical and digital goods, and it manages everything. It, it gives you inventory management, absolutely everything you're going to need to run your own store as well. And if you want to stretch Squarespace further, if you know all the coding stuff, then you can use their dev platform to take your Squarespace site further than ever before. Believe it or not, Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month and you can get yourself a free domain name if you sign up for a year. You can start a trial with no credit card required and build your website today by going to squarespace.com and when you decide to sign up, make sure that you use the offer code Cortex. This will get you 10% off your first purchase and help support this show. Thank you so much to Squarespace for helping out today. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Explain something to me though, like, so does Inkscape create the animations or do you create the individual pictures that you then put into Final Cut to create an animation with? My videos actually have far, far fewer animations than people think they do. Because what I'm, what I'm actually doing is, for almost everything, I am using slide transitions between different drawings to make it look as though I have animated something. So the vast majority of my, quote, animations are actually slide wipes or dissolves between different drawings that I have done that give the appearance of an animation oh. without actually doing an animation. Huh. Okay. So it's like a trick of the eye, I guess. It, it really is. It's a trick of the eye. And if, if you look at the videos, you can see it once I mention that it's there. And... For me, that's very, very easy to do because what I end up doing is I have some notion of what should the final state of this little sequence in the video be. And so I create the final state. And when I have that drawing, it's very easy in Inkscape to duplicate it and then make, it, make the changes backwards to what the initial state is. And then I'm doing wipes or dissolves between each of those different drawings, if you see what I mean there. Yeah. So... So I, I do the final picture where everything is on the screen and then I duplicate it and go one back and I say, okay, I'm going to remove this character because I want them to come onto the screen. And then that's just a, like a wipe that's happening in some cases. Or, or in, uh, in Final Cut as well, you can have slides move around. And so very often when things are moving, I'm doing that in Final Cut saying, here, here is, um, like when I move, say, for example, all the little country girls that I have, I move them around. I will have... Uh, a transparent PNG that has the country girl on it. And in Final Cut, you can tell it, like, move this image from the top left to the bottom right. So that's where the animations are mostly happening is actually in, in Final Cut. Okay. X. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm interested in the Wacom, Wacom tablet. Yeah, you seem fascinated by this. I but really it's just am. A, it's just a pen tablet, Mike. No, but I've never used one, you see. That's why you're fascinated. You should get one and then immediately realize how intuitive and boring it is. There is one setting, though, if you're going to use a pen tablet, which is very difficult to get used to at first, but ultimately pays off, which is you have two options for how do you want it to work. And one option is called pen mode, and one option is called mouse mode. Now, most people want to try using it in mouse mode, which is when you think about when you're using a regular mouse, the mouse pointer has acceleration. Right? So if you move the mouse very quickly, 
the pointer will go all the way to the edge of the screen, right? And it'll slam into the edge of the screen, but you haven't moved your hand that much. You've only moved your hand a little bit. So the, a mouse is actually almost like an acceleration device. But what you want to switch it to is make sure that the pen tablet is in what's called pen mode. I'm just picking up my pen now. I don't know why I'm picking up my pen now because you can't see me and neither can the listeners, but I felt like I needed it in my hand when I explained this. So when the Wacom tablet is in pen mode, if you take the pen and put it anywhere on the tablet, the pointer on the screen will jump exactly to that location on the screen. So if I take the pen and I put it down in the top left corner of the pen tablet, the pointer immediately jumps to the top left. And if you do that, it allows your brain to get a physical sense of like you're moving a pen on a physical piece of paper. And it lets you kind of jump around the screen instead of doing the thing that you do with a mouse, which is trying to accelerate toward your the place that you want to go. It's a weird feeling at first, but it's definitely the way to use it in the long run. Does that make sense? I think it is difficult to fully understand it without having one. Bottom line, when you buy a pen tablet, make sure you put it in pen mode, people. You'll freak out at first, but you'll love it in the long run. Okay. I'm looking at these on Amazon now. Okay. And I found one here. The the what looks the number one bestseller is the Wacom Intuos Pen Graphics Tablet. You just doing online shopping now, Mike? I'm looking. I'm looking. Okay. You got me interested in this, like as a way it might be a nice way to edit shows, I think. So one of my favorite things from your videos is the jokes that you tell with the animations. Like, so these can be little timing things or little subtle references to things. Um, like, that's mm-hmm. the kind of stuff that I like the most. How much of the actual entertainment of the videos do you think lives in the animation? I, I can't answer that question because I have a very hard time when I'm making the videos perceiving them as entertaining. I think the best way to explain this is my wife often likes to see the videos before they go live. And so if I, if it works out with timing and if she's home, I'll, I'll show her the videos before they go up. And we always have the exact same conversation every time, which is I get the video ready for her. And then I look at her very seriously and I say, okay, you can watch this, but you need to understand this isn't a funny one. There's nothing funny in this one. It's just a regular video. And she goes, okay, because she doesn't believe me and she shouldn't because she will watch it and then she'll laugh at various parts or she'll think something is funny. And I'm always surprised at where she laughs. Like I have a hard time perceiving in advance that people will find anything in the video funny. So if you're asking about where do I put jokes in deliberately, the answer is I don't really know. Like After I see her watch the video, then I can think like, Oh yeah, I guess that was kind of funny. But I don't it doesn't seem that way when I make it. It just seems like, oh, I'm trying to make a make a little video explaining a thing and I'm just talking and explaining the thing. One of my very favorite things from any of your videos is a little joke in the most recent not the not the Confederate flag video mm-hmm. where you're talking about I th- I've mentioned this before where you're talking about Florida and they put up the wall and then mm-hmm. uh is it like the rest of America like kind of the the the, the America like girl she kind of slides in with a knife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's the giant America girl slides in with uh, the gun drawn. 
That's it. And I just love it. I just, it just really makes me laugh every time I see it. Because it's just this funny little moment where, like, you're saying something. It's like, oh, you know, and they, and they, but that didn't work out. And there's just this gun sliding in from the side of the screen. I like stuff like that. You mentioned that one last time. And that's a perfect example of, it seemed to me when you were talking about it that you found it funny. And I noted that when we recorded last time. I go, oh, Mike thought that was funny. How interesting. But from my perspective, when I made that little segment... The point was not to have it be funny. When I was writing that, I was thinking, I don't want to spend the words to say that the United States sent in their military and took over this tiny country that barely existed. I was just trying to think of a way to convey these two things very fast. That this country existed, and then obviously the United States military just rolled right over them like it was nothing. And so I thought, oh, okay, the best way to show that is to just have a a ridiculously outsized United States girl come on screen. And it would just be obvious that she would, she would crush them. So that that's my thought process when I was making it, but it did not occur to me that anybody would find that funny. I was just thinking this is a way to express an idea very quickly. So I don't have to say it so that the video just keeps moving on. The the references are a very different thing. I like putting in the little references because I have always liked watching movies and television shows that benefit from rewatching you get more out of them the second time that you watch and so i love putting in lots of little things on the screen that people can look for on a second watch through but that's mainly because i like watching stuff like that uh you know i think of some of the old monty python movies where there's just stuff in the background that when you've watched them a bunch of times you can notice that there's a little thing happening there or there's some reference to something that is not even remotely the focus of what's happening on the screen. It just feels like, oh, the set designer just wanted to put this thing in there. And so I like doing that in the videos, and that's why I do them. Would you say that you enjoy the animating process? Oh, no, no. It's oh, really? so boring. It's so boring. <laughs> it's very tedious. It's very long. It's very boring. The animation is by far and away my least favorite part of, of making the videos. Oh, that's interesting. Because it... Takes the longest, does it? Longer than script writing? No, no. It, it's it's by far and away shorter than the than the script writing, but it feels longer because I always do it all at once. So it's it's two or three or four solid days, depending on how long the video is. Of just I get up and I sit down at my computer and I'm animating until I go to sleep, and then I do it again until it's done. So it it just feels like this enormous burden, e- even if the actual total number of hours is much less than the script writing. Does it take a long time to render, like, the actual final export? Does that take a lot of time? It did when I had uh, a tiny, <laughs> very slow computer, I'll yep. tell you that. I'm, I remember having to plan to uh, render the video at least the day before I actually ever wanted it to go up. Because I think on my original computer, it took something like six hours to render <gasps> stuff. But it was... That was mainly a function of how old my computer was because I just, I, I could not afford a newer one. But yeah, I remember that it was just, it would just take absolutely forever to render stuff. And then I was also on a terribly, terribly slow internet connection. So it was an all day process to render and to actually upload the file as well. It's like, it could never do that in a single day. Whereas now that I can afford an actual real piece of professional business equipment to work on, I think those things render out now in 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. That's a big tops. difference. Yeah, it is a really big difference because it also allows me to do some of the things I've talked about before of 
rendering something, being able to show it to some people and then make some last minute changes and re-render it and still get it up on the same day. Like that, that makes a big, big difference in being able to do that kind of stuff. That being said, I know the rendering process has increased lately because since I do everything as a vector drawing, it's very easy for me to increase the resolution of the videos so that uh, as YouTube has rolled out HD and then 2K and 4K support and now 4K at 60 frames per second support, I always just make my videos at the maximum of, of whatever I can, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, that there's a stick figure on screen, but I am rendering it at 4K 60 frames a second. But I feel like, why not? I just have to flip a button in my uh, Inkscape, you know, to say how big do I want the resolution to be? And it's another button in Final Cut Pro to say, oh, export this at 60 frames a second rather than exporting it at 30 frames a second. So it's very easy It's very easy for me to do, but I end up with gigantic files now that take a long time to actually upload to YouTube. And they take a long time for YouTube to process. So that, that part of it has taken a little bit longer than it used to. So we've spoken a lot about the animation, but there are some videos and there are some elements of some videos in which you use stock photography or you've got like humans need not apply where it's all like stock video and stuff like that. Mm. What mm -hmm. makes you want to look at something like that? And then how do you go about finding that, that type of uh, media? Okay, so there's a, there's a process that has happened here. If, if you look at the videos over time. In the beginning. In the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> in the beginning, I used almost entirely Creative Commons images, which is very time intensive to find the right images and also to make sure that I'm giving credit to the people who created them. Uh, again, for the listeners, Creative Commons means that someone is, is posting the image on the internet, but they can specify in advance the ways under which it can be used. So they can say, yes, you can use this image for commercial purposes, and you can modify it as long as you give me credit. And uh, back in the day, not anymore, Flickr made it very easy to search for Creative Commons images. So I was always just using Flickr to go through and try to find appropriate pictures that had the right licenses on them that I could use. But as I said, that was very time intensive. So I eventually switched to doing the drawings because that took less time and I can get exactly what I want. But recently I have been using more stock image. And quite frankly, that is in no small part because of the Patreon support for the videos. Because actually paying for professional high definition stock is surprisingly expensive. You know, very often there's something like 400 slides, maybe half of which could possibly be an image. And it would be negative profitability on those things if I was just using the YouTube advertising revenue to cover it. So the humans need not apply is, is a perfect example of without the crowdfunding, I would never have made that video because that thing was just ungodly expensive in terms of I want to license all of this, this stock imagery. And because I'm a crazy person and because I'm thinking about this video you know, years down the line, I want to license the highest quality version of every single piece of footage that of you have. Yeah, I think I, I forget exactly what it was, but I, I broke a record with that uh, Las Vegas video because in the beginning of the Las Vegas video, there are two clips in the first five seconds that are each 4K and 60 frames per second. 
And it cost me $1,000 for that five seconds right in the beginning of the Las Vegas video. When when you said it was expensive, I thought you were like just, you know, overplaying it to sound, you know, like it's always really expensive. That's why I don't do a lot of it. The Patreon support helps, like, you know, so it feels like it balances out. But no, Mm -hmm. you need that money. (laughs) That is crazy. $1,000. Yeah, I mean, again... That was that was uh, the highest, which is why I mention it. And yeah. I think it's in no small part because uh, those two opening shots, they were each obviously uh, shot on a drone, which was probably being flown illegally over Las Vegas to get that footage. Or a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, or maybe a helicopter. But yeah, both of those, um, like I said, I wanted them at 4K and 60 frames per second. If you want the, you know, if you want the, like the 480p version, you can probably get that stuff for 20 bucks. But if you want the high quality versions, like they crank up the price very fast. And also the other thing that makes it very expensive is many stock agencies adjust the price based on the expected audience. Of course. And so when I have to fill in something like, oh, I, I expect it's going to have a million views, the price often goes up. And and there have been some pieces of footage that I do want, but but even I've had to say like, you know what, I cannot spend two thousand dollars on a single piece of stock footage for a two second clip in a video because this wants that amount if it's going to go out to millions of people it's just wasteful yeah at at a certain point it doesn't make any sense the the las vegas one i was willing to spend it because i wanted a very impressive opening right at the start but i definitely use less stock later in the video than i might otherwise have because at, at a certain point the the calculation starts to not make any sense. That's interesting to me because when I did my marketing stuff, we used agencies, mm-hmm. but every now and then we did a, an email or a piece of like postal marketing in-house just for time purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of that, if it was my campaign, is I would need to find an image. And mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Sometimes I would spend eight hours finding one image for an email. It's surprising how many images you will come across that are close to what you need, but they're not actually what you need. Do you know what makes it harder? What? Brand guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> I can't just choose the image I like. It has to be the image that I like, that my boss likes, that my boss's boss likes, and the person who wrote the brand guidelines five years ago would agree with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I totally get it. Like if you have something in your mind that you want to put in the video, but because you're not an artist, some of the times the only way to get it is to find this type of imagery. Yeah. And this is actually, this is actually a, a good point to, uh, to clear up a, a, a little point that I, I misspoke where I said I do all the uh, animations myself. And someone brought up the, the three videos that I have done with Canute. Uh, the artist that I've worked with who helped me with the single transferable vote video and the two Lord of the Rings videos. When I say the animations, what I'm, what I'm thinking in my mind is this assembly process at the end and, and drawing stuff. But the way, the way it worked with Canute was, he's very patient, <laughs> is... Having worked had, with you now yeah. for a uh-huh. couple of months, uh-huh. I can't even imagine... Uh, what that process must have been like because it took us a a very long time to agree on the artwork oh mike mike we agreed on that artwork so fast from my perspective so that's what i assume right is that that took comparatively to all of the other stuff i've done in the past way longer but Uh i know that that one little thing there is probably a minuscule 
amount of like back and forth compared to what that you must go through when you're creating this artwork for the videos. So with Canute, I I was giving him lists of, uh, for example, for the the voting videos. Like here are the animals that I want, and he was coming back with various suggestions, and we and we would talk through it and and develop like, okay, I like this direction, I don't like this direction, this is good. And a similar thing with the Lord of the Rings one. The Lord of the Rings one was a huge amount of work for which I am eternally grateful how much time he spent on that. The impression I got was it really absorbed his life for quite a while. In the end, when we would decide on okay, this this is the final thing. When I say I'm doing the animations, I'm taking the assets that he has created, and then I'm the one who's arranging all of those things. So Canute is not laying out how are they going to be on the screen. He's providing me with the characters. So that's why I still in my mind think like, oh, I'm doing the animation. But the Lord of the Rings one was definitely a case where I realized right away my art skills were not adequate for being able to do that video because there are just too many characters that need to be differentiated immediately. Like I need to bring someone on board to help me with this. And so that's uh, that, that's the way that I have done it. But people ask, they go like, oh, you, you seem to hate the animations. You complain about them on Twitter all the time. Why, why don't you get someone to help you? Like, And I, I can work with an artist like Knut in this way where they're providing me assets that I am then arranging on the screen in the way that I want. But my limited experience with trying to hire someone to just straight up do the animations has always been disastrous, just a total disaster and not worth it. Like it takes way more time to try to explain what I want and always get back results that I am just ultimately unhappy with than it is to just do it myself over a long weekend. So that that's why I do the animations, even though I don't really like them. And they seem like something that could be outsourced. But my experience says says they can't be. And uh, I guess for compare and contrast here, if you think about the animations that are done for Hello Internet, the ones that are done by Dovsky, that totally works from my perspective because I don't have any idea what Dovsky is going to make. He just emails me and says, here's the audio clips that I want to use. Do, are all of these okay? And I say, yes, almost every single time. And then I, I give to him total creative control. I say, you, you just do whatever you want because you produce amazing work. And that's a totally different scenario from I have been working on a script for six weeks and I have a very clear idea of what exactly needs to be on the screen at every second. And in that circumstance, it's almost impossible to delegate in an effective way to another person. But with Dovsky, I have no expectation for what he's going to do with the Hello Internet animated. And so that works like just when you're delegating to someone, if you can just give them total control, that works. I know I I could never create a Hello Internet animated in the way that he does. Like that is his his skill. And I have no skills in that area. Those videos really are amazing. I love those videos. He does a good job. He makes uh, he makes Brady and I look very good and very funny. Shall we address the situation, the elephant in the room? What's the elephant in the room? Well, we're at episode 10 now. Yeah, I'm done. This has been great. Okay, see you later. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we've actually talked about this ahead of time. I mean, really, the the big problem from my perspective is that if we end it here, it's terribly unsatisfying because you opened the very first show telling people that I put sleep on my calendar. Yep. And we we haven't even addressed that. 
that would have been in this episode if I knew we weren't going on. <laughs> yes, but I also told you that we can't talk about calendars or schedules because I have been off calendar and schedule for like a month now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, oh, no, it's, it's a verboten topic. We have to pass over it. My feeling is uh, I'll agree to do some more, Mike. I don't know how many more. I don't know. I don't know how long this will last, but you still have a list of things that you want to go through with me. And mm-hmm. I think you make the show very easy for me. I get to show up and I, and I talk and then I leave all of the heavy lifting to you. Which is just how I like it. <laughs> Which is just how I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we work so great together. <laughs> uh, but we are making some changes though. Now we've we've had our time. We've we've learned some things from the past ten episodes, and we're going to make some changes. So mm-hmm. we're going to go to every two weeks mm-hmm. rather than every week. Um, the plan is to still stick to a schedule, so it will be every second Friday there will be a show. You and your schedules, and uh, we're also changing the hashtag. We're not doing any else great today because we kind of run out of time. But we're going to change the hashtag going forward for feedback and questions and follow up to Ask Cortex. I think Ask Cortex makes more sense and i've even seen people just use ask cortex because the show is is you and me talking about stuff mm-hmm. and <laughs> i definitely did want it to be every other week because i have found every week just absolutely exhausting i don't know how you do all of the podcasts that you do mike you are on three four <laughs> podcasts a day and and I'm looking here like, oh, man, every week I just did one. And then on the weeks when there happens to be a Hello Internet and a Cortex, I feel like my whole work life is falling apart. I can't do these two things together. <laughs> the thing is, though, like for every other podcast that I do and or every other podcast I've ever been involved with, they do not take as much work as, as the shows that you do take. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I'm fussy. I heard you mention earlier the first and third edit of Hello Internet. <laughs> Right. Nobody yeah. does that, Gray. <laughs> no I do. I do that. three edits of the show. I don't understand. See, this is the thing. So it's just it's just more work. But in the same vein, for us to get this show to a standard that we both like, it takes a bit more work than the shows that I usually do as well. And it's actually work that I'm happy to do because I really love the the finished product. I'm glad you do. So to make that sustainable, uh, we're gonna we're just gonna do it every two weeks. It's gonna continue, and there's gonna be much more Cortex forever. No, not, it's not forever. Cortex forever. No. We're not putting a limit on it, so it, it can be forever. See, you, you, always, you just, I feel like I give you an inch and you take a forever. Yeah. Is, that's... Like, <laughs> I've agreed to do some more episodes, uh-huh. some unspecified number of episodes, and you're like, oh boy, eternity. <laughs> this is not what I have said. Eternity is as possible as five. At this point, because there is no limit. Uh, no, it, not as possible. It is it not is. even remotely as possible. Uh-huh. At the very least, we will both die. And like, and then it will be over. You speak for yourself in that scenario. So we will be back in a couple of weeks' time. Don't forget, feedback, follow-up questions for Ask Cortex. Yeah, so we will talk again in two weeks. We will indeed. See you then, Mike. See you forever.